Lehman Avenue is a busy church and also a blessed one. And one of her greatest blessings is each and every one of you and your attitude of service and heart. And I think it's right to echo the sentiments in the article in this morning's bulletin by Neil and thank every one of you for your efforts and involvement in this past week's Vacation Bible School. If you taught a class, if you made a meal, if you were a part of the activities, just want to say thank you. You made a difference. And yesterday in the efforts with the Joyful Hearts VBS and all the things that went on there, many of you volunteered your time and your effort. And it's no small thing that you made a difference in Warren County. And really, as a result of what happened last week, some children being introduced to Jesus, possibly for the very first time, you made a difference and changed the world. And special thanks to David Chang. We appreciate him, what he's meant to the ministry team here. I'm sure we'll say more about that later, but we love and appreciate you. Thank you for your efforts. And Michelle Wilson and all that helped her yesterday as well. And just saying all that to say is we continue to try to reach our community for the good and glory of God. There are opportunities for us to grow so that we can do that more effectively. And so please be marking your calendar for September 8th through the 10th with our congregational seminar on strengthening the church within. It ties with our theme for the year, engaging everyone for eternity. David Sproul from the Palm Beach Lakes Church of Christ will be here to help us continue to do what we're already trying to do. Study the Bible, strengthen our Bible school program, and reach our community with the gospel. Thank you. You are to be commended for your efforts, and let's continue to press toward the goal of glorifying God in our community. I checked just last night, and according to the statistics, there are about 8 billion people who currently occupy our world. And statisticians believe that by the year 2050, that number will be closer to about 9 or 10 billion people. Now, some people, they hear those statistics and they're frightened. They're terrified. They say, will there be enough food and resources to take care of everybody if we get up to some 10 billion people? Other people are terrified for other reasons. They watch the news and they see sin, wickedness and evil running rampant throughout our world. And they say, with more people being introduced into the population, will those problems only heighten and increase? How can we be sure that the world will continue to be safe? Whatever you think about those numbers and whatever they communicate, this one reality is true. As more people come into our world, as more people are born into the human existence, there will be even more people that need to hear the good news about Jesus Christ and ultimately to hear from God. This won't surprise you, but there are many people even now that walk around in our world and right here in Warren County that have no idea what God is all about, what he thinks about their lives and about his love, care and concern for them. They may be totally oblivious or just blind to what the scriptures actually teach. You think about Moses and the privileged position that was his. We're told in passages like Deuteronomy 34 and verse 10 and Exodus 33 and verse 11 that God spoke with Moses face to face, just like a man communicates with his friends. But God doesn't communicate that way with us today. God's primary means of communication to humanity today is through the scriptures and through this book. And 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says all of it is God breathed and it's profitable and it directs our paths. It is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction. And when we take it in, we're fully formed for everything God would have us to do. And so we could say to people that don't know anything about God here, take the Bible and read it. But wouldn't you say that's a daunting task? There are 66 books, a lot of information. Much of the Bible is complex and can be challenging for the beginner. And so where would you start with somebody as you're trying to introduce them to God? Where would you point a person to say this is God's message to you? What would be your elevator speech? 
IVP academic put out a series of books. I think the series is still going. And they've had these seven sentences series, seven sentences to describe the Old Testament. And they take what they think are seven key verses. And they say, if you get these seven, you'll know the Old Testament, seven sentences that really just summarize the New Testament. And they pick these verses out. And what they're trying to do is what we saying that people struggle to do. How do you boil it all down? What would be God's elevator speech to the world? Well, this morning, we're going to give it a shot. We're going to see what would God say? What's God's message to everybody in the world? God has a lot to say, but I think there are six primary statements that God would make to every human being in the world. Boy or girl, rich or poor, young or old, Christian or non, God has something that he wants to say to everybody in the world. And it's that message that we need to echo to the world today and respond in the way that God would have us to. Let's begin. Number one, God wants to say to everyone in the world, I love you. Smith read for us a moment ago what's been called the golden text of the Bible, and rightly so. John 3:16. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. In fact, 1 John 4 and verse 8 says that God is love. And God manifests his love or demonstrates that he loves us by sending Jesus to the cross to die for our sins. First John three and verse 16, God's message to everybody in the world. One of the first things I think God will communicate to people is that he deeply and seriously loves them. You know, most people don't realize that God loves them. And then those of us that do realize it probably don't appreciate how much he loves us. Turn your Bible to Ephesians chapter three and notice Paul's prayer there for the church at Ephesus and what he bows down and begs God. These are people that are in Christ, mind you, people that have already embraced the love of God and obeyed the gospel. But in Ephesians chapter three and verse 18, Paul's saying it's richer than you might imagine. He says, I want you to know the depth and the length and the height. And I want you to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge being filled with all the fullness of God. Paul says God loves you. And he loves you more than you can even fathom. God's message to the whole world will be just that. Do you know there are people that think they can sort of behave out of the love of God, put themselves in such a predicament that God no longer loves them because of the way in which they behave? But they're wrong about that. This does not mean that God approves of everyone and everything they do. But it does mean this. God's love for you doesn't start with your good behavior or end with your worst. He just loves and he doesn't ask your permission to love you. He's just going to do it anyway because he's God. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Who is that true for? Everybody in the world. Lamentations 3 and verse 22. Even people that deny his existence and refuse to surrender their lives over to him. God says, I'm still going to love you. And he's going to prove it. I mean, these passages suggest that God loves us. But there's proof. Jesus says he's kind to the unthankful and the evil. Luke 6 and verse 35. He sends his reign on the just as well as the unjust. He makes his sunrise on the evil and on the good. Matthew 5 and verse 45, God's message to everybody in the world would be, I love you. Now, how would you know it? What would you point to to say, well, God desperately has proven his love toward humanity? There are several things. One, every good thing that's ever come into your life has come from God. Whether we acknowledge it or not, James 1 and verse 17 says every good and every perfect gift comes down from above, from the father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. 
It's the seasons and the food that we consume and that we eat. Acts 14 and verse 17 says he gives us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. Listen, God didn't have to make the world colorful. He could have gone black and white and made everything plain. Why add all of that flavor? Part of that is just to sign off to say, I really do love you. And if you ever doubt it, look no further than the cross because it's there that his love is manifest and poured out. Romans 5, 6 through 8, God says, I didn't wait for you to behave into my love. My love can't be achieved. It simply needs to be embraced and received. God committed his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. You know, some people struggle with this point and they say, if God loved me, my life wouldn't be in the condition that it's in. I look at my life and my circumstances, and this is actually proof of the fact that God doesn't love me. I mean, how can you believe in a good, merciful and loving God? Look around at all the suffering. Look at people that are hurting. Look at people that are in pain and tell me that your God is all loving and all caring and all powerful and concerned. And we should appreciate that however bad our circumstances are, they would be equally worse without the presence of a loving God in the midst of a fallen and broken world. God would say to everybody in the world, I love you, but we've got to push back against some of the lies that want to keep us from believing that. And here are four of them. Number one, lie number one says, I can't believe in the love of God because how could a God so great love a person like me that's so small? David had the same question in Psalm 8 and verse 4, something similar. What is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you visit him? Some of you are saying, how can I read a print so small? I realize that now, but David didn't understand that his head, the very hairs of his head were all numbered. Matthew 10, 29, 30 and 31. Jesus says, God cares about you. You have more value than many sparrows. God says, I see you just because you feel small doesn't mean you're small to God. Lie number two is this. Somebody says, if God loved me, I wouldn't be struggling like I am right now. I'm struggling in my life. I've been faithful to God. I've done everything I can to please him. And yet I'm struggling. God's love seems absent. Listen to John three and verse thirty five. It says the father loves the son and has given everything into his hands. And guess what? Jesus still suffered. The love of God didn't remove suffering from Jesus's life and it doesn't remove it from our lives. Never allow the suffering in your life to cause you to question the love of God, because the very fact that you are currently surviving that suffering is proof of his presence, his providence, his care and his love. Number three. Some people say, you know what, I can't really believe that God fully loves me. In fact, God will love me when I finish, insert the blank, and then make him proud. If I could just read through the whole Bible, then I'll, I'll know I'm really loved. If I lead one soul to Christ, then God will truly love me. But to our great surprise, even when we get to heaven, God won't love us any more then than he already does now. God's love doesn't wax and wane. It doesn't increase and decrease. God loves you as much right now as he always will. That's not good news. That's not bad news. That's great news. It's to say to us that God loves us more than we realize. And in heaven, we'll just simply appreciate it more. But it won't increase. God wants us to be faithful to him and to serve him. But we don't work our way into his love or earn it based on the way that we behave. God loves us just because that's who he is. And this is lie number four that we struggle with. And it is. I know God doesn't love me because I don't deserve it. And we don't. But Paul says, but God, who is rich in mercy, we were dead in trespasses and sins. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, are you saved? It's not our own doing. It's what God has done. We don't deserve his love. But that's the point. Anthony Everett wrote a biography on the emperor Hadrian. And he talks about how in the first century, the infant mortality rate was so high that the especially wealthy people didn't really really endear themselves to their children. 
They thought, you know, this child may not make it and I would hate to have my feelings all wrapped up. More than that, centuries after Hadrian's reign, parents that had two sons would often name them the very same name because they didn't think both boys would carry the name into adulthood. They tried to get themselves ready for heartbreak and in doing so, they distanced themselves from their children. God knows that a relationship with you and me will lead to his heartbreak due to our sin and our wickedness. And still he draws near to us. Listen to Jesus in Matthew 10 and verse 45. The son of man comes to give his life as a ransom for many. His love moves him toward us. Hosea 6 and verse 1 says he crushes us that he might bring us up again. He strikes us that he might heal us. And God would say to everybody in the world, I love you. No caveats. Doesn't matter what you've done. How much of it you've done. I don't always like everything you do, but I love you. And there's nothing that you can do about it. God's message to everybody in the world would be learn to appreciate and bask in my love. Now, here's number two. God's message to the world would be sin will ruin your life. The Bible says so much about this. It's hard to overlook it. Romans six and verse twenty three. The wages or the payments of sin are death. Habakkuk 1 in verse 13, it's said about God, his eyes are too pure to even behold evil. Sin separates man from God. Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2. In the days of Noah, when people violated God's will, it says that God was grieved to his heart and he 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 rebut he rebuttaled making man on the earth. Genesis 6 and verse 5. He repented and regretted that he had done that because sin grieved him that much to his heart. The Bible says that sin is repulsive in God's sight, pride, arrogancy and the evil way. Do I hate Proverbs 8 and verse 13? But among all of those other reasons why God despises sin, you might have already known those others. One of the reasons why God hates sin is because it guts the good out of our lives. And God's message to everybody in the world would be don't commit sin because it's offensive to me. But don't commit sin because it'll ruin you. Turn your Bible to James chapter one. James chapter one and James is talking about trials and temptations that God's people often face. And he starts in verse 13 by saying, do not be deceived. James one and verse 13. Let no man say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. God can't be tempted with evil. Neither does he tempt any man. But every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Now, notice verse 15. When lust has full grown, it gives birth to sin and sin when it is finished, gives forth to death. And James says in verse 16, don't err, don't be deceived, my beloved brethren. Sin will ruin your life. And God would say that to everybody in the world. God's message to everybody in the world would be don't go down that way. Don't go down that track. Don't make those choices. It won't turn out good for you. Woe to the wicked. It will be ill to him as he has done. It'll be done to him. Isaiah three and verse 11. Your sins have kept back good from you. Jeremiah five and verse twenty five. God says sin will ruin your life. Matt Smithhurst is right when he says sin often deceives us about his purposes. Sin is a slave trader disguised as an abolitionist. It speaks of freedom. But if you listen closely enough, you can hear the sound of shackles. Sin says, take me up on this offer. Things are going to go great. But we know better. The story of Little Red Riding Hood goes back to 7th century Europe. And you know the story. I'm not going to read it to you or quote it to you, but I think you know the story about the sly wolf who meets the young girl on her way to her grandmother's house. And she's got this basket full of goodies. He wants the girl and the goods in the basket. He distracts her. She's picking flowers. And before long, he's gathered enough information to beat her to her grandmother's house where he devours the grandmother upon her entrance in. Through more trickery and deception, he then devours young Red Riding Hood. 
And that story was told in times past to say, hey, be careful about things that seem innocent, that seem harmless because they can be deadly. But you wouldn't be surprised to find out that modern versions of the story have been sanitized, that now the girl and her grandmother survived, though, they're, though they've been devoured by the wolf. Our world is often trying to say to us, you can do whatever you want, however dangerous, and it won't harm you. And God is saying something completely different. God is saying, beware of what you put in your body and what you take in, because sin can and will ruin your life. First Peter two and verse 11, Peter says, dearly beloved, I urge you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which wages war against your soul. He says, I want you to live a good and a godly life for your own good. Stay away from those things that would ultimately upend the image of God that's present within you and destroy you. Beware. In Genesis chapter three, the devil slithers up next to Adam and Eve and he says, sin and you will live like never before. And God is saying sin and you will die like I never intended. For by one man sin into the world and death by sin and death passed to all men because all have sinned. God have mercy on us for thinking that we are smarter than God or that we know better. God's saying, don't do this. You just look at the human race. We've been sinning for a long time. How's it working out for us? Are we any better for it? As smart as we become, as much advancement as we've made with technology, rebellious children add sin to sin. And God's message to everyone would be, don't do it. One time, Brittany was watching a show on TV, and it was about these researchers that were concerned about sharks. And they wanted to find out these sharks' patterns and hopefully keep the sharks from devouring people that were around Cape Cod, in the Cape Cod area. They built these little baskets, and they let them down in the water, and then the researchers would go down on top of the baskets so that they could place these trackers on the sharks. And as you watch the show, you see several times they're just inches away from being a shark appetizer. I mean, they're this close. And two words emerge to the mind when you see it. They're crazy. Why would you do that? Why would you put yourself in harm's way? Why would you get that close to danger? How do you think it's going to work out? And then you think about your life and I think about mine and all the things we've said. And why would I put myself in that compromising situation? Why would I put that into my body and that into my mind? Why would I say those words? Why would I do those deeds and continue to go down that track? Don't I know that's dangerous? Why would I put myself in harm's way? And then we all echo the words of King Saul in 1 Samuel 26 and verse 21. I have played the fool. I've done that which is foolish and made terrible decisions. And God's message to all of us would be stay away from sin because it will ruin your life. God wants what's best for his children. His commands aren't barricades to keep us from having fun. They're actually there to help us to live our lives to the good and glory of God. God would say stay away and refrain from things that are ungodly and unrighteous because what seems harmless is often deathly harmful. Just ask Achan, who just had to have the Babylonian garment and the pieces of silver and gold and cost 36 Israelites their life in Joshua chapter 7. Just ask David. Everything about David up until 2 Samuel chapter 11 is good and godly and the sun is shining on David. And he had no idea that just one night with Bathsheba would cost him the life of his daughter, the life of Amnon, the life of Uriah and the life of Absalom. Just ask Ananias and Sapphira. Just one lie. There's nothing like church fame. They lied one time just to be popular for a moment. And they both were buried the same day. Or maybe Aaron. 
where Aaron thinks this one moment of idolatry is no big deal. But Exodus 32 and verse 28 says Israel had 3000 funerals that day because they practiced idolatry and they rebelled against God. The narrative from our world is sin as much as you want. Nothing's going to happen to you. And God is saying to everybody, sin will ruin your life. And we could talk about this from these passages exegetically, but everybody in this room of accountable age could talk about these things from experience. We know what's coming to our lives when we gossip when we shouldn't have. When we've given in to temptation, when we've gone down the wrong street and the wrong road, and God's message to us is you won't be sinlessly perfect, but with every fiber of your being, go away from sin, not because I'm a strict cop in the sky that wants to keep you from fun, but because you know it's not in your best interest, and I know the same. Here's number three. God's message to everyone in the world is Jesus is the only way to salvation. This is a message that God even communicates to Jesus while he's on earth. In Matthew chapter 26, you remember Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying. Matthew 26 and verse 39, and he says, if it be possible, let this cup pass for me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And what does God say to Jesus in that moment where Jesus is saying, if there's any other way for me to escape death, let it happen. God's silence toward Jesus in that moment says loud and clear to everybody in the world, there is no other way. There is no other way for people to be saved and be made right with God apart from Jesus's death on the cross. And so John 14 and verse six, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man comes to the father but by me. It's a declarative statement from heaven to say if we would ever be made right with God, it will only be through Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross. You know, I've got friends that are not religious. They don't believe in Jesus as the son of God, but they don't have a problem with me being religious. And sometimes we discuss these things and they'll say something like, listen, if Christianity works for you, that's great for you. But it's just not for me. And that kind of terminology, that kind of talk makes it seem like that's how Christianity works. And maybe we think that way. Maybe we think, well, I know good people and I'm a Christian and this is where I get my religion from. This is where I get my goods from. And it's just not for some people. Jesus says, I'm for all people. Christianity is for everybody and anybody that will be on good terms with God has to come through Jesus Christ. The cross of Christ is not a compromise with the world. It's an ultimatum. It's where God says it's going to be this way or no way. If you'll ever see God in peace, it'll only be through his son, Jesus Christ. So Acts 4 and verse 12, Peter says, neither is there salvation in any other. For there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Other foundation can no men lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. First Corinthians three and verse 11. Jesus is the world's only hope. If somebody says, well, I believe in a higher power, but I don't think we should really get specific about Jesus and saying that he's the only way. Jesus would say, I'm your only answer. I'm the only way you can make it back to God. Jesus is the only master that won't crush you if you serve him, but will instead be crushed for you. No earthly thing, if you get it, will satisfy you or if you fail it, will forgive you. But Jesus will do both. Jesus says, I'll be crushed in your place. And if you fail me, I'll forgive you. He says, I'm the only way to salvation. Hold your hand in John 14 and verse six and go back to Isaiah 35, because this idea of Jesus being the way is prophesied about in the Old Testament. Isaiah looks 700 years before Jesus comes and he says Jesus is going to be the way in verse one down through verse seven. There's this talk about the messianic age when healing is going to take place and Jesus is going to be able to do all these miraculous signs to authenticate that he's from God. But notice this cross reference between John 14, six and Isaiah 35 and verse eight. Isaiah says he saw a highway 
highway and individuals walk on this way. And even the rebellious, when they walk on this way, they don't go astray. Their walk is straightened up because Jesus fixes them. He is the way, ultimately the only way for people to be saved and made right with God. Throughout the first century, people struggle with this reality. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul talks about Jews and Greeks struggling to see how salvation could be possible through one man. And he says, where's the wise and where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of the world, the world through wisdom knew not God. It pleased God through the foolish message that we preach to save those that believe. The Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. We preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul says it might not make sense to you. And if you were the author of the story, you might draw it up a different way. But God's done it the very best way. And Christ is that way. He's the only way. If you buy something from Amazon, our world has conditioned us for this review process. And in fact, companies like this, if you buy something from them, they want you to leave a review. And there are several reasons. If you leave a review, it'll help them to see how they're doing, how they're going about their business. They, they may maintain the product based on your review. They may amend it or pull it all together. The reviews help other people to make up their mind about how good the product is. God does not read your reviews of the gospel and he doesn't read mine. God doesn't want our critique. He wants our compliance. He wants us to receive Jesus' salvation and obey the gospel in view of who Christ is, regardless of how we feel about it. God's message to everybody in the world is, I love you dearly. I want you to be saved. Sin will ruin your life. Stay away from it. And Jesus is the only way to salvation. Alistair Begg tells the story of the thief on the cross in a sort of fictional way. You remember the thief on the cross, Luke 23, 39 down through 43. At first, he's a thief. He's cursing Jesus. And then he is penitent. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Beg says it works this way. Just imagine the thief on the cross finally being ushered into heaven moments after he took his last breath or in paradise. He gets there and everybody's surprised that he's there. The angel at the gate says, what are you doing here? And people that are in heaven that knew him, that he stole and maybe that he had cursed Jesus. How did you get here? And the doctrinal questioning begins. They start asking him about the doctrine of scripture. They start asking him about his response to the law of Moses. They start asking him about his behavior and his moral life. And they're saying over and over, what are you doing here? And finally, he hangs his head and he raises it and he says, I don't know why I'm here. They say, well, how do you get here? On what justification can you be welcomed into this place? And he says, the only thing I can tell you is the man on the middle cross said I could come. Beg says, when you're asked about your eternal standing with God, if you begin to answer that in the first person, I did this, or I've done that, the only proper answer is in the third person. What he's done for me, what Jesus has done, he's the only way to salvation. And everybody who will be welcomed into God's presence is going to say the very same thing. The man on the middle cross said I could come. Jesus says, whoever the son sets free is free indeed. John 8 and verse 36. We need him to sign off on us. And God would say to everybody in the world. Jesus is the only way to salvation. It's not bad news. It's good news because Jesus died for all of humanity. First John two and verse two. But we won't sneak past him. We'll have to go through him. Here's number four. God's message to everyone in the world would be obey the gospel. Obey the gospel and turn your life to me is what God would say to everyone in the world. 
you know, the Bible emphasizes that the gospel needs to be obeyed. Turn your Bible to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and notice what Paul says in verse 7 down through verse 9. He's talking to Christians about the fact that they're being persecuted. And he says to you that are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with these mighty angels in flaming fire, he'll take vengeance in verse eight on those that don't know God and those that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They'll be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. Paul says God will destroy people that don't obey the gospel. And so in God's elevator speech, I think this would be in it. Please obey the gospel. Who needs to do that? I count at least four groups of people that need to obey the gospel. Group number one would be accountable individuals, people that are of accountable age that have violated the will of God or an accountable stage in life that have said, I violated the will of God and I've gone the wrong way. Ezekiel 18, 20 through 21 says the children don't bear the sins of their parents and the parents don't bear the sins of their children. The righteousness of the righteous will be on him. Everybody's accountable for their own deeds. But when we reach that stage in life where we violate the will of God, we need to be thinking about obeying the gospel. Group number two would be those that have obeyed something else. Somebody's come along and said, hey, you can become a Christian this way and you can't read about it in the Bible. Paul would say in Galatians 1, 6 through 9 to folks like that, that's another gospel and there's not another. But there have been some that have troubled you and perverted the gospel. If you've obeyed something other than the gospel that you find in the New Testament, you need to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. The third group would be those that didn't really do it from the right motives, from the heart. This doesn't mean that you needed to know everything when you obeyed the gospel, but it does mean you needed to be doing it for the right reason. Because you believe Jesus is the son of God and you want to turn your life over to him. Romans 6 and verse 17 says from the heart you've obeyed that form of doctrine. People need to obey the gospel because they want to do it from their very own heart. And then the fourth group would be those that want to avoid eternal destruction that we read about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9. Question, have you obeyed the gospel? You know, somebody may be hearing this and saying, what does that mean? We throw that phrase around a lot in churches of Christ and as Christians, obey the gospel, obey the gospel. And we almost take it for granted. A lot of people don't know what that means. What is the gospel? The gospel is the death, the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. But those are just facts, the death, the burial and the resurrection. How do you obey facts just that Jesus died and was buried and that rose again, that he rose again? What do we mean when we say obey the gospel? To obey those facts means to respond to what Jesus did in those three events based on our faith in him in order to be saved. It's to believe that Jesus is the son of God. John three and verse 16 It's to have our mind changed and as a result, change our behavior and repent. Acts 17 and verse 30 It's to confess what now our heart believes. Romans 10, 9 and 10. Jesus, you are the son of God and is to be lowered in water baptized for the forgiveness of sins based on that reality to have our sins forgiven. Acts 22 and verse 16. Turn your Bible to Romans chapter six, though. And I think in this passage, it's probably the clearest one in the New Testament on what it means to actually obey the gospel. If the gospel is the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it is, Paul says right here, this is how it's done. Romans six and verse three, he says, don't you know that so many of us as we're baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death. And therefore, we're buried with him by baptism into death. Just like Christ was buried, we were raised to walk in newness of life. Verse five, if we've been planted together in a death like his, we'll be raised to walk in new life like he is. Paul says you undergo your death, burial and resurrection when you're baptized. And in doing that, 
you obey the gospel. You live it out in your own life. Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose, and you and I need to do the same thing. And God's message to everybody of accountable age who's violated his will would be, I love you. Sin will and is currently ruining your life. Jesus is the only way to salvation and obey the gospel so that you don't miss out on what I'm doing. You know, sometimes people hear this and they treat it like I think some people treat hand sanitizer. Have you ever seen people put on hand sanitizer? Maybe you're one of these people. You put it on, you rub it together and then you smell it. Do you ever do that? And people smell it like I'm not using that anymore. Listen, it's not cologne or perfume. Why are you worried about how it smells? What is it supposed to do? It's supposed to keep the germs off your hand. Never mind how it smells. Some people hear the gospel and they say, I don't like that. I don't want to do that. That's not the way I would have done. I really don't like water. I don't want to go and I don't want to change my mind. And God's saying, wait a minute. It's not up for you to review it. Listen, don't change the gospel. Don't pervert the gospel. Don't fight back against the gospel. Simply obey it. Romans 1 and verse 5, Romans 16 and verse 26, Paul says it's for the obedience of the nations. Everybody in the world needs to do this because we all owe God a faithful response and response to what his son has done for us. Here's number five. God's message to the whole world is the church is a necessity. Jesus says on this rock, Peter, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Jesus promised to build his church. The prophet said that Jesus would build his church, not a building, but a group of people who all respond to Jesus the same way. And everybody who would be saved and everybody who is saved is a part of that family. Every time you read about the church in the New Testament, several things emerge. Number one, there's only one. There's one saved family of God, though it meets in different locations throughout the world. Many members, but one body. First Corinthians 12 and verse 20. But God wants everybody in the world to be a part of that family. And his message to everybody in the world would be the church is a necessity. It's not optional. You know, there are people that love Jesus Christ, that love the Bible, that love God and that realize that sin is ruining their lives. But when you start talking to them about, hey, you need to be a part of God's family, they think, well, why? I can do the very things that you all are doing outside of this. You know, there are many organizations doing great things and they're not labeled as a church. God is doing the very best things in the world through his people and only through his people. There are many good things and God uses various providential means to accomplish good in the world. But the very best things, that is the salvation of human souls, comes through the church that belongs to Jesus Christ. We could even go as far as to say that the church that belongs to Jesus Christ is a billboard of his grace to everybody in the world to say, look at what I can do through people and to people who submit their lives to me. And I want this for everybody. The church is an extra credit for a select few of people who just can't get enough religiosity. It's God saying to everybody, I want you in my family and I want you to be there for your good and my glory. Look at Ephesians chapter three and notice what Paul says in verse 21. We normally harp on verse 20 and for good reason. Paul says in Ephesians three and verse 20, God is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we ask or even think. And we tend to think of that personally. And there's a sense in which we should. God can do more than we ask or even think in our own personal lives. But notice verse 21. He says, according to the power that works within us, that God may be glorified in the church by Christ Jesus. Where has God received his glory among his people and in his church? And God would say to everybody in the world, don't skip the church. 
I don't just mean the assembly. I mean the involvement and the connection that comes from being a part of the body that belongs to Jesus Christ. It's true. There's one church and you obey the gospel and you're baptized into that family. But God would say, I want to do great things through you. And I don't want you to do those things disconnected from my people on an island. I want you to be a part of that billboard that I post to the watching world that says I'm doing amazing things in this world and the best is yet to come. Here's the last thing. God's message to everybody in the world would be focus on eternity over the immediate. Our world is so inundated with the immediate. We get everything fast, our food, our Internet service, whatever we want at the snap of our fingers. And God's message and the song that Mike led us in before we started this morning, this idea about what would it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul is a message that Jesus echoed throughout his preaching and teaching. And it's a message that God would echo to everybody in our time today. He would say, I know your life is busy. I know you've got a lot going on, but be sure to put the premium on things that are eternal. There's a song in our hymn book, build your hopes on things eternal. And that's what we should do. This life is a nanosecond compared to eternity. James describes it this way in James 4 and verse 14. Your life is a vapor or a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. And God's saying to everybody in the world, your life will be over before you know it. But let's make a deal. You give it to me and I'll make it last forever. Give your life back to the author of life. And he says, I won't write in a conclusion. You will enjoy everlasting life, but only if you emphasize the eternal over the immediate. Don't put any of your eggs in this earthly basket and think they're going to last Put your hopes in heaven. Jesus would say, lay up treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust do corrupt, where thieves don't break through and steal. Build your hopes on things eternal. While everybody in the world is in a rat race toward things that will ultimately be burned up, Christians should know better. Peter says the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night in the which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein will be burned up. Seeing that all these things will be dissolved, what type of people should you be in all holiness and godliness looking for the new heavens and new earth that he's promised us? He says, do those things to be found without spot and without blemish that we might be found by him in peace. Second Peter three, 10 through 14. Build your hopes on things eternal. So to the spirit and not to the flesh. Be steadfast, unmoved, always abounding in the work of the Lord and say to yourself, am I putting all of my energies and my greatest efforts in those things that will still matter when the world is on fire? Because Jesus would say, what would it profit a man to gain the whole world and ultimately lose his own soul? C.T. Studd was a famous cricket player, or at least he could have been. He traded all that in in order to become a missionary. He took the gospel to places like Africa, China and India. And he said, it's my desire and my duty to start a mission work in the graveyard of hell. That's how he described the world. He said, I want to take the gospel everywhere in the world. And he's most known for a poem that he wrote that really is sometimes labeled anonymous. But the words go back to him and the words are only what's done for Christ will last. Here's the last stanza of the poem. It says, give me, Father, a purpose deep and joy or sorrow, your word to keep. Faithful and true, whatever the strife, pleasing you in my daily life, only one life, it'll soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for you and you alone, bringing you pleasure on your throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I hear the call, I know I'll say it's was worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. 
Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life. It'll soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. To everybody who would sit still long enough to listen, God would say, it's passing quickly. This life is the preface for eternal life. Don't waste your life. Submit it to me and give it to me. Jesus gave his life for us so that we might one day enjoy eternal life with our Heavenly Father. You know, there are eight billion people in our world. And the more people that are born into it, that's just more people that ultimately need to hear from God. They need to hear how much God loves them. Our world doesn't talk about sin anymore. It's pretty much been ejected out of the English lexicon. But we need to hear that sin will ruin our lives. Jesus is the only way to salvation. He's not in his pantheon of religious teachers to be selected by those who like that flavor over another. He really is our only hope. The church is a necessity, not an option. And Jesus says, obey the gospel so that you might enter it. And once you've done that, give all of your efforts, all of your energy to things eternal. And when you see God in glory, you'll be glad you did. We've talked about what it means to obey the gospel. We won't reiterate it here. Maybe we can help you. Maybe you'd like to study with us. We haven't convinced you in one lesson that you need to do so. We'd be happy to do that. Maybe things immediate and things temporal have gotten the best of you lately, and you would like the prayers of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Of this, I can assure you, you're in an auditorium full of people that love you and that would love to be a part of praying for you and helping you in any way that they can. We're going to stand and sing a song to encourage one another if you need to respond. Come now as together we stand and as we sing.